welcome to the Science Shambles podcast, producer Trent here. This episode is the podcast audio version of our regular Sunday Science Shambles Q&A show, which is streamed live at 3pm British summertime every Sunday on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Cosmic Shambles. So obviously since this was uh, initially a live stream, there might be a couple of visual elements that don't translate as well to the audio version on the podcast and there might be the one or two technical hitches, such as the uh, joy of doing live stream shows over the internet uh, when everyone's stuck at home. And remember, you can support us at the Cosmic Shambles Network, patreon.com slash cosmic shambles. If you head there and subscribe, uh, not only do you get lots of goodies, extra shows, bonus live streams and all that sort of stuff, uh, that's that support is what enables us to keep making these podcasts and the live streams and everything else uh, while we can't be out doing live shows like we normally would be. And check out all the other great science and culture content we've got going on at cosmicshambles.com. There's the new uh, exclusive documentary series we made with the European Space Agency with Helen Chersky and Ginny Smith and Tim Peake and others. Lots of other live streams, blogs, podcasts, and plenty of things to keep you occupied. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, welcome to Sunday Science Q&A. We're back. We, uh, we, we, I was going to say we took a week off. We didn't take a week off. Uh, we were doing the Cheltenham Science Festival last Sunday. We did an early evening show uh, with Grace Petrie and George Egg and Katie Mack and, uh, and Josie Long. And that is still up online, as is our sea shambles that we did for, in replacement to us being at the Albert Hall. We did it all in our lofts, attics, or if you're Steve Baxter, what appeared to be a luxury houseboat near some mallards. Uh, Thanks very much for joining us again. We've had loads of questions. We will try and deal with as many of them as possible. If you also have questions during the show, if you send that to the live feed, we will try and deal with those as well. We have a brilliant panel. I'll just go through the uh, the tedious little bits and pieces, which is one, there is a tip jar uh, somewhere on your screen. Uh, if you are able to, no problem if you're not. It is free to everyone. But if you're able to tip, that all goes towards uh, various different funding of art centres and artists during this weird time where uh, basically each new month you cross out a new month of your diary i'm crossing out november at the moment that was a waste of money it's a great big desk diary 11.99 lovely edward hopper paintings i'm not looking at any of it nowadays uh also we've got uh, a new episode of the european space agency series which uh uh helen was uh, a major part of really uh and uh, we're going to be meeting uh, helen chersky again as usual in a moment uh on thursday evening uh we're doing the third part of the i'm a joke and so are you uh, kind of conversation and stand up and poetry and nonsense and i've also got a guest Josh Cohen, who is a fantastic therapist who I interviewed for the book and also a very uh, good author as well, who's been on Bookshams in the past. And we're going to be talking about some of the kind of uh, mental health and therapy issues that I discussed in the book going off in other directions. So that's Thursday night. And uh, Helen's new BBC show, Ocean Autopsy, is on iPlayer at the moment. And uh, I will also mention at some point Simon Singh, who's one of our guests. Uh, Simon has his parallel maths project up, which is weekly maths puzzles. Uh, approximately for 11 to 15 year olds and you can sign up at parallel.org.uk i will mention that again before the end so uh first of all let's meet uh well every sunday helen chersky helen how are you i'm doing very well it's sunny it's uh, interesting it's interesting we did a show about that on monkey cage the other day sun good or bad <laughs> we came up with good in the end it was decided uh and it was who did we have on that it's, it's not gone out yet we had steve jones and uh lucy green and uh someone else i've totally forgot oh tim minchin i've totally forgotten tim minchin there yeah t tim was well, there his hair looks a bit like the sun you know it? those those things where you have the eclipse and you can see all those tendrils coming out i think i can see him in that role uh, he wasn't. You see, the trouble is that because of the time difference with him being in Sydney, he was in a very dark room uh, oh. drinking some form, I think, of Merlot. <laughs> so we'll be getting a very different kind of mood from him than from the rest of the panelists. Now, I should find out straight away. You're, uh, you have a show and tell for us. What is the show and tell today? I do. I, I have some. Um, I have this, which I'm going to hold up. There we go. So, so this is a piece of malachite and it's a copper ore. And the reason I'm showing it to you is that I have. So I have when I was a kid, I was fascinated by gemstones stones and you know you know it was the thing you found in gift shops of various types and my parents used to have to pull me away because I'd be like rifling through looking for the prettiest one um and I would have loved this as a kid um but one so this is a, a one of the earliest ores of copper and it was also used as a green pigment it's not used as copper or anymore 
Um, but I just really like it because it's one of the like one of the things about rocks and geolo so geologists when you study geology, which I did for a bit as an undergraduate, they tell you about all the colours of rocks. Never really that colour. They're all sort of shades of brown, and you have to kind of get yourself inside the geologist's head to be convinced it really is a colour. Anyway, malachite is definitely a colour, and instead of the sort of um, coppery, you know, orangey sheen of of copper. Um, it's uh, it's this beautiful green and i've got this because it used to be like four thousand years ago people were mining this stuff from the north of wales uh, and there's also malachite ores in cornwall and this is where copper came from but the amazing thing about it is that to get copper out of this you have to basically heat it up until it stops being green which sounds so boring i can't imagine the person who put this beautiful green rock on a you know on a fire uh and then you have to do something else to it then eventually you get copper out the other end anyway so that's my show and tell i just think it's really pretty and i think there should be more malachite in everyone's lives that was beautiful that, that was just on the cusp of you turning in turning into percy from black Hatter 2 at one point there which was highly enjoyable <laughs> the um <laughs> the green <laughs> um, we are also joined by I'm, I'm gonna go to monica next monica grady who i think the first time she was on monkey cage was with patrick stewart am i right patrick stewart am i right am i right the first time monica it was patrick's Stuart, yes, indeed. Captain Picard himself. Now, this is the reason I wanted to go next to you was just because of looking at that malachite, um, oh. and it's something. I'd, hopefully, I don't know if you uh, uh, is, is the signal not great. I'll tell you what. We might come back to you, Monica, if the signal's not that good. I'm going to go up to Simon, but get ready for questions about meteorites, uh, if you can hear that. Um, Simon, hear that. Um, Simon. It's lovely to see uh, you with had a vote, and everyone's decided that it is the best backdrop that anyone's had yet. <laughs> courtesy of one of my sons who's loaned me his bedroom yes now uh, is that is that stenciled by you or another member of the family oh it's going very well today you're entirely on mute now ah this is what i like about doing science shows is finding out whether the technology works helen you might have a lot of questions to answer today simon made a great face though i mean the moment when you suggested he might be on mute and it just it froze for a second in that face um, <laughs> That's no, no, I, 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 all artistic credit goes to mrs singh uh yes yeah nothing to do with me so you've got a show and tell for us today what have you got yeah so um um just seeing rocks, and I'm wondering whether rocks is going to be a bit of a theme. I wish I brought up a belemnite. I found a belemnite the other day, which is one of those old fossilized um, squids. And the reason I wanted to show it was to ask whether I think Mary Anning's assistant down in Lyme Regis used to grind up the inside of belemnites, and you could somehow still extract the ink. And she used to use the ink from fossilized belemnites to illustrate some of the findings of Mary Anning. And that all sounded too good to be true. So if anybody knows if it is true, I'd really appreciate that. Um, but that is such a beautiful idea, though. The idea of looking at that of all the different sense of, of life that has gone into then creating... Oh, that's fantastic. So if it, it's, if it's true. We've decided it's yeah, true. Yeah. So if it's not uh, true science allows that. Science says if it's a nice story, you're allowed to... Isn't that how science works? I think that's how science Shall works. Shall I keep quiet at this point? <laughs> yeah, you keep quiet with your science communication hat on. Remove that for the mystical hat. <laughs> but the thing I but the thing I, I, I found, I hope you can read it, um, it's a homeopathic remedy. And the writing might be reversed and may be hard to read it. Um, but it's actually... A, a homeopathic preparation of Berlin Wall by Ainsworth Pharmacists. And uh, the whole thing about homeopathic Berlin Wall is it's used for treating isolation. So I've been taking uh, regular doses of this over the last month to help me get through those tough times. Where did you get it from? <laughs> well, Ainsworth Pharmacy, apparently. Uh, one, of, one of the homeopathic pharmacies here in the UK um 35 new cavendish street so yes working it means you should have a persistent hankering to read john le carré novels is that happening not yet no i don't i don't read novels <laughs> oh of course <laughs> you don't happen. some made up old <laughs> nonsense um i just because you mentioned homeopathy i was interested where thinking of of uh, of your book that you wrote with uh edzard ernst the uh, trickle treatment um something that i've uh, i don't know what you're taking 
10 years, 12 years ago, when we started doing shows together, a lot of what might be considered some of the kind of charlatan debates and some of the, the, the quite dogmatic debates, and sometimes that will be involving creationism, sometimes involving alternative medicine. It feels now like a lot of that style of debating, which seemed very much to be in the kind of pseudoscience area, seems to be almost mainstream now not just in that area across the board in terms of the way we see so many columnists we see so many political ideas being argued in such a dogmatic way do you think there has been a change in this, this kind of there's a certain form of kind of a paranoid diatribes i think which reminds me of the kind of conversations we we used to talk about uh you know skeptics in the pub and stuff like that um um so so has that moved has that tone infected all sorts of other areas of discussion. Um, I, I guess it has. I mean, we, we, we now have uh, topics that polarise people from, from how we deal with COVID to how we uh, deal with Brexit and everything else. Um, so, so maybe, I, I think it's just the same for any heated, any, any highly controversial topic where people are, are divided. And, and that certainly happened with homeopathy. If, if you're an ardent supporter of homeopathy, if, if you genuinely believe that it works, if you genuinely believe that as a homeopath you are helping people, then you would see me as being the enemy. I'm trying to stop this natural, safe mode of healing from, from reaching people who desperately need it. And so I quite understand why homeopaths are incredibly passionate about it and and sometimes they got quite personal about it and similarly as scientists or rationalists it's understandable that we got quite strident in, in some of our opinions about the money that was being wasted and and the the lives that were being put at risk um so yeah i, I think that certainly was was the tone of, of much of the debate um nowadays i think there's much more questioning of of, of homeopathy so you know stand-up comics and 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 people writing opinion pieces tend to be the, the assumption tends to be that homeopathy is dodgy and uh, certainly in the last 10 years we've seen people like the nhs really clamp down on on homeopathic uh, spending um and that's been really important because in the past homeopaths would always say homeopathy must work because the nhs funds it well that's no longer really true so um i think i think the tide is turning in our favor in that in that particular debate so that's good. So the tide's turning in your favour there. It's just going against us in everything else. Yeah, fine. I mean, that was a that was a very balanced answer, by the way. So that's not going to trend on Twitter. Um, Monica, hopefully you can hear me now. How is? Uh, can Can you hear me, Monica? Uh, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, it's a slightly bad connection. So I apologise, uh, everyone. That, 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 always a bit of a debate on this. I will. Uh, let's see if we've got any more. We might have to drop Monica out and reconnect and we will uh, come back to you if uh, I think that might be the best thing, because I think otherwise we're going to constantly go be going back to hello. Hello. Yes, this is this is hello. Two, one, three. Hello. Um, hello. Um, I think I think we're going to try that connection again, Monica. We're going to drop that out and we're going to uh, we're going to try. OK. And reconnect All you. right. Okay, bye-bye. We will, hopefully, Monica, th this is one of the most enigmatic performances we've had from any scientist, so that's very exciting. Um, I'm going to start off with you, Simon, because, uh, of course, you uh, wrote a, a tremendously successful book, Firmus Last Theorem, which is also a documentary uh, as well. And uh, the first question we've got, uh, I apologise, way, not all of these have, have names attached to them. Not everyone left the name of these questions. What do you think the next Firmus Last Theorem might be? Or perhaps what do you hope it might be? Some long, unsolved puzzle of maths yeah um <clears throat> i mean the great thing about Fermat's last theorem was that it was a long unsolved puzzle but it was also comprehensible um it, it was something that you could explain to 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 you know a teenager in fact andrew wiles who who went on to prove it came across it when he was a 10 year old so i think the beauty of Fermat's last theorem was this unsolved problem that everybody could understand um with a bit of elementary maths, the challenge was how do you solve it? Hello? Um, Hello? Hi. That's great, Monica. That sounds good. Right. I'm now on my iPad rather than my um, computer. Is that Brilliant. any better? 
That's Andy Brilliant. We'll give that a go, Monica. We'll just we'll come right back to you. We're just going to talk quickly about Fermat's last theorem, and then um, we'll be talking. This about. is the most chaotic one we've had. <laughs> we've had some very professional ones, and Trent's been not yeah, a like, good week with technology. Like, not a good, not a good week with technology. Right, with technology. Well, right. So yes, Monica, we'll be back with you in a moment. So Simon, Fermat's last theorem. Yeah. So the, the the problem that springs to mind that's like Fermat's last theorem, but it's already been solved. But I'll give it a quick mention. Is is um, the four color map theorem which is if you have a map and you want no two regions to have the same color, how many colors do you need? And this goes back to the 1800s. I think it was somebody at UCL posed it and, uh, and people thought about it for a long time. But, and you couldn't find a map that needed five colors. Nobody could find that five color map, but nobody could prove that four colors sufficed. Um, and that was eventually proven in the 80s. And again, that's, that's a problem with a simple pen and paper and a little bit of sketching. You can explain that to a kid. Um, proving it again turned out to be a horribly big problem. But if we look at outstanding problems today, um, the Clay Mathematical Institute or the Clay Foundation in America in the year 2000 named the seven big problems that they felt were the outstanding um, pinnacles that, that, that mathematicians should be trying to climb. And uh, of those seven problems, one of them has been proven already, uh, the Poincaré conjecture, which is all about kind of spheres in higher dimension and how you define them. And that was proven by a guy called Gregory uh, Perelman in Russia. And you got a million dollars if you prove that, but Gregory turned down the money because he's just said, I do this stuff because I love it. I don't need the million pounds. Um, of the outstanding, the remaining six questions, uh, which cover things like actually theoretical physics, fluid dynamics, um, yeah, all sorts of the Hodge conjecture and various things. The one that's maybe most comprehensible, although I've tried to explain it before and I've got it wrong, um, is P versus NP. So this is the idea that there are some problems in math that are kind of doable. Um, you know, given the size of the problem, a computer could eventually crunch through it and solve that problem. And they're called P-type problems. And then there are other problems which are apparently fundamentally much harder. And they're called NP-type problems, non-deterministic polynomial, I think. And the question is, is P-type fundamentally different from NP? Are the easy ones fundamentally different from the hard ones? Or have we not yet figured out the way to make the hard ones easy? And um, that, that's an outstanding problem. Uh, if it turns out that we can make the, the difficult ones easy, then suddenly a whole load of, of things we'd love to do we know we could do them if we were smart enough, um, as opposed to them always being intractably difficult. So I think P versus NP is 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 out there as a long-standing problem that mathematicians would love to know the answer to. Oh, wouldn't it be nice if someone before the end of the show gives us a solution? So there's a, a little bit of pressure for you there now. Um, uh, Monica, hopefully we can uh, hear you now and you can hear us. I've got to meet you, right? Right, right. Let's see. Uh, so, so lots of questions about me, Troy. Uh, we can hear you. I'm just going to give you. There's about a three second delay. So please, when you when you hear this, tell us about the meteorite. Right. Well, first of all, it's a bit of stone and uh, it's got and it looks like it's burnt on the outside. So it's come from the asteroid belt. Four thousand five hundred. 67 million years old, older than any rocks on the earth. MD problems, but that sounds more like a semiconductor than anything else. But there's my meteorite. How's that? That's great. I'm going to give you the first meteorite question. We have a few. This is from Jay, who is aged All eight. Right, go on. And Jay would like to know, what's the oldest meteorite that's Jay. been discovered on Earth and where was it discovered and where did it come from? Right, Jay. All, all meteorites, more or less, have the same age, four, five, six, seven million years. Um, so all the ones that can from the asteroid belt have have time is so you know a few weeks or a few years so it's very difficult to say this particular 
meteorite is older than that particular one because the big groups of meteorites all have the same ages. The ones that have different ages come from the moon and the ones that come from Mars are so young that they're the same age as um, they, they formed on Mars at the same time the diamond on the surface uh, and some of those have been found in, in India, in Africa, um, in America, so all over the place. Now, I'm going to sorry, we're going to have slight pauses because we're getting you three seconds late. I'm not sure quite how your delay. So that's why if you think that we're going, we're, we're waiting, we're furious with your answer or what wants it. It's not that it's just going to be a little. So I'm going to stay with you while we've got you just because <laughs> there's a few more uh, questions. And this is one from Liz. who says uh, it's something okay. we've talked about before. How much does the universe change for you when you actually touch pieces of rock that have come from somewhere beyond Earth? How much, how, much, how much does the universe change for me when I look at a rock from the... I mean, we, we um, talked about before, well, sorry. What I was doing, it makes me realise that just getting a rock doesn't answer all the questions that we have because so much of the earth is hidden um, so we can't get at the core of the earth and we can't really get very, very deep down into the crust of the earth different types of meteorites we can see the iron meteorites that come from the claws of asteroids and we see stony meteorites that come from Hang on a minute. I'm happy to hold up the sign. No, 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 Right, what we're going to do is we've got, what we might do is we might try you on audio. Trent's going to have a little bit of a conversation with you, Monica, because uh, uh, we, we may well just try you on audio. It might be so. Um, uh, by the way, before the end of this episode, we will tell you who Monica's Wi-Fi provider is, and uh, <laughs> and you can make sure you don't use them either. Uh, so we, we're going to come back to, to Monica in a moment. I'm, I apologise <laughs> to everyone for the fact that this is uh, uh, every now and again. Of course, this is always one of the, one of the risks. Is sometimes on some days, it's just the, the Wi-Fi is not as good for some people. Uh, this is a, a question, Helen, which I think almost comes off the back of uh, the question I asked Simon. And uh, this this one, uh, Lucy would like to know what area of physics is the one that you are most hopeful there will be a solution for within your lifetime. So that gives you. Ah, so here, so there's a thing here, which is that the, the question the is, are the solvable bits of physics the most interesting, interesting bits of physics? It is very similar to what Simon was saying. Um, there was a uh, in so so solving is a is a strong word, but understanding better, we can sort of deal with that. And there is one area of science which is really complicated, which and it's funny that it's complicated because we can all actually see it, and that's turbulence. Um, so turbulence is when you have a flow of a fluid. So it might be you know wind. Uh, carrying particles it might be when you breathe out um, it tends to be a kind of fluid flow so that's either a gas or a liquid moving around where everything's kind of mixing up so it's like you know um when you sort of stir tea and you see swirls but then the swirls are complicated the inside of a washing machine basically that's the kind of thing to imagine so turbulence um is really important in the world because basically it mixes things so whenever you um whenever we have you know wind so wind blowing along flat for example we think of the wind moving horizontally but actually it's kind of mixing in where there's a boundary layer where it moves over the bumpy surface of the earth it's getting sort of bounced up and then you get these swirls and that mixes in the layers of the atmosphere um, and there's lots of lots and lots of applications where turbulence is important for mixing and actually coronavirus is one of them if you want to understand you know people are talking about droplets that people might exhale which may or may not have a virus virus particles on them if you want to understand where they go that is a turbulent flow problem it's not like they come out and just sit there they move around in the flow and so 
we do understand turbulence to some extent statistically but i think there are a lot of questions in turbulent flow that are really hard to answer and we we can do a sort of decent job with some numerical modeling but it's complicated every time and it would be nice if it wasn't complicated every single time if there was a some kind of bigger explanation which which got you through more of these problems so yeah it's not a single answer to a single problem but i think the most practical and useful questions are the ones that don't have nice clean answers uh, then they're, they're the ones the mathematicians the pure mathematicians don't like them the apl applied mathematicians are all over them so i would pick turbulence as the thing that if we if we could understand and predict it certainly more easily and with less computational power it would let us understand a whole load of other things a lot better Brilliant. The, uh, thank you, thank Helen. you, Helen. Simon, this is uh, from Prandit, who uh, says, I half remember, I always like these ones, I half remember seeing a science video about quantum coin flipping. I can't remember what it was. I just remember the phrase, and it's always stuck with me because it sounds very cool. I'm hoping someone who wrote the code book can explain it so even I can understand it. Your minute starts now. Right. Um, so well, the, only, the only bit of the code book that involved quantum oh, involved um, was something called quantum cryptography. So there's this idea that we live in a golden age of cryptography. If I want to send you an encrypted message, uh, we can download some free software. I can email you something. And all the world's computers working for uh, a billion years would not be able to crack our code. So we kind of live in a golden age of cryptography. It, theoretically, our code could be broken. But realistically, um, the, the, the complexity of the code makes it unbreakable. But that hasn't stopped people trying to get truly, truly unbreakable codes. And that's where quantum cryptography comes in. And the idea with quantum cryptography, let me try and break this down. Um, stage one is, okay, there is an unbreakable code already. It's called a one-time pad. It, it's just a random, anything random, a random series of letters, a random series of numbers. If if I kind of mix that randomness in with my message, because I'm adding randomness to the message, the result will be random. And if something's truly random, nobody will ever be able to decode it. The only way they can decode it is if they take my random, what's called a one-time pad, add it again, and then the message will, will reappear. Um, so that, that really exists. The one-time pad, if I get my one-time pad to you, Robin, you can read my messages and no one else in the world will ever have any hope of reading my messages. The problem, however, is how do I get my one-time pad to you? Okay. Um, I can't put it in the post. I can't encrypt it because somebody might break that code and get the one-time pad. How do I get a one-time pad to you? And the way I'm going to do this is by sending it via photons. And I'm going to send you a series of photons that are polarized. I think if it's, if it's vertically polarized, I'm going to call that a one. And if it's diagonally polarized, I'm going to call that a zero. I think let's call that one and zero, one and zero. And I'm going to send you these photons. Um, and that's my one-time pad. Now, the one thing I'm concerned about is that somebody might be eavesdropping on our optical fiber, and they may be listening in and copying down the photons as they come through to you. But we can kind of check if anybody is eavesdropping, because one of the things about quantum physics is if you observe something, you will change it. And the eavesdropper will change what I'm sending if they try and eavesdrop on it. And, and so, for example, one way I can, we can do that is if I send you a photon that's vertical and the eavesdropper tries to measure it diagonally, there's a 50% chance they will measure it diagonally. Now, if you measure it horizontally, there's a 50% chance that you'll measure it because, you know, you're not perpendicular to it. You might still catch that, that photon. So you, with a, with a horizontal polar, uh, uh, polarizer, the, with a horizontal filter, you've caught what was originally a vertically polarized photon, which should never happen except our eavesdropper was in the middle messing around. And so we can use this to see if the eavesdropper is there. If the eavesdropper is there, we throw away the one-time pad. If the eavesdropper is not there, then we know we've got a legitimate, truly random one-time pad that we can use for our communication. And that system, which is truly, tr I'll come back to that in a second, but let's say it's truly unbreakable, um, is now commercially available. There are people at the university in, in Geneva uh, and other companies have set up quantum cryptographic 
quantum cryptographic systems that are being sold and being used by banks, presumably in Geneva. Uh, it's, it's theoretically unbreakable, but, you know, one of the things in cryptography is that you have to implement it. You have to build a system. You have to build these polarized filters. You have to build photon generators. You have to build optic fibers. And if Eve can somehow muck around with the technology and infiltrate the technology, then the system can be compromised. But so far, quantum cryptography seems um, like the ultimately unbreakable code. Uh, because, and it's, it's, it's kind of reassuring to have that in the background, because although the codes we have now are unbreakable, theoretically unbreakable, if they, if they were to be broken, you, you completely disrupt the balance of, of, of well, you, you, you disrupt the balance of the world. So suddenly superpowers that, that, that are fronting off against each other can steal information and maybe exploit vulnerabilities. Um, you know, the whole e-commerce world collapses because we can't have secure financial transactions. So the breaking of the current codes would be a complete meltdown of society. Um, but quantum cryptography might be there in the background to help out. Right, which has now uh, meant that quantum coin flipping is all sorted and we'll come back to you before the end of the show. Otherwise, you might require some uh, addenda there. Uh, question for Monica, who's back with us again. So many different angles uh, that, that, that we've had today. Um, this is, uh, I get, we haven't got a name with this one, but do you get annoyed when the media grab bits of quotes and inflate those to run major misleading headlines with your science? I'm thinking about how earlier this year there were lots of headlines uh, about people say about you saying there might be octopus creatures on the moons of Jupiter, and that's not really what you were saying at all. <laughs> Crikey. Yeah, yeah, I do get annoyed uh, about this sort of thing. I don't, I don't blame journalists. I don't blame you. Uh, um because they need head-grabbing head titles, otherwise people aren't going to read the things. But it is nice to be quoted accurately. I can't remember saying anything about octopuses on the moon. Blimey. <laughs> but I'm fairly certain there aren't any, if that, if that clears up that mystery. <laughs> what we've just found out is the new scientists have been hacking your phone, so uh, we'll... Fine. That's okay. <laughs> but is, is it, what do you think the way is? Because it's something we've talked about with Helen before as well, and and quite a few people. This that that way of somehow making sure that the full scientific idea gets it, not just that one bit from the paper, not just that yeah. bit that's in the uh, you know kind of in, in in the press release. Is there any way of at least trying to 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 curb that, or will you always be at the mercy of that kind of um, journalism? You'll always be at the mercy of that kind of, of journalist because the soundbite is what is required. You know, even if the journalist um, interviews you for an hour and transcribes faithfully every word you say, when it gets to the final programme or the final article, it's going to be edited down to, you know, Monica Grady said, that's really interesting. And, and, and you know, no matter what else you've said, Um now, there are places where uh, scientists, where academics can write things um, and then get them edited by journalists so that it actually sounds reasonable. And that's a, a blog site called The Conversation, which is a, a really interesting thing to look at. But again, it, it's still, if you want to grab the headlines, you've got to be in some ways, if you want to get a scientific message across You've got to be prepared in some ways not to sacrifice your scientific integrity, never that, but to be able to talk in a way that can be chunked so that you say something sensible in, in five words rather than five paragraphs. Um, I'm not good at that because I just talk far too much anyway. There's a. I'm sure we've probably mentioned this on before. before there's the, the the lovely phrase "Gelman amnesia," named after Murray Gelman, uh, who said that whenever he would read something about anything that was any close to kind of his work in physics in a newspaper, he'd go, "This is all nonsense. This isn't anything that we're working on at all." And then he would turn the page of the newspaper and believe everything else in the newspaper and go, "Well, hang on a minute. Why is everything else going to be right? It's just going to be my area of expertise that's wrong." I think that's a very. And and I would say to everyone watching this, you know, when you when you, I'm sure most of you know where this going but next time you know when you see a really good and interesting story in a newspaper about anything going on with scientific research to go do go if the conversation is a very good idea to go somewhere like that there, there are many places you can go, try and find a site where you know there's experts writing on that in a lengthier mm -hmm. way 
which will then cover some of those ideas. While, while we've got you, Monica, just in case, see, I'm, I'm good to, just going to stay with you for the time being. This is from uh, Frankie. Frankie says, I read an interview with Monica last week. Let's hope it, it might be about the octopus again. Let's just find out. Right. I, I read an interview with Monica last week where she said Mars has a long history of mission failures. Is there something specifically difficult about missions to Mars beyond the standard caveat of space is hard? Um, right, Frankie. Well, yes, I did say that. Uh, and there isn't anything that's particularly special about Mars. Um, it, uh, space is hard. There are uh, a lot of, uh, there's been a high percentage of mission failures, but that's because most of the first ones just failed because um, the, te the technology wasn't there. Over the last few years, uh, we've had a much, much better, well, I was going to say hit rate, but that's probably completely not the right um, phrase to use. We've had a, a, a good success rate. There are things that are difficult, though. Uh, Mars has an atmosphere. So whenever um, a, a lander has to come down through the atmosphere, it has a chance of getting hotter and hotter and hotter and, and, and burning up. Um, things like um, the Schiaparelli lander, something went wrong with that with one of the, um, I think it was one of the detectors, and um, it, it, it didn't detect how close it was to land before it actually landed. Um, and so there are all sort, there's all sorts of odd technology things that go wrong. But by and large, fingers crossed, because we've got a couple more going this summer. By and large, fingers crossed, things are getting a lot, lot better. I do think there is also that the speed in which we get non-experts criticising. I remember Colin Pill Pillinger, you know, getting loads of things. And you go, he got it got to Mars. You know, there's a lot of people who've got lost on the way to Norwich. You know, this has got to Mars. And there are, as you said, you know, making sure you're dealing with all the variables. I, th I think that is, you know, it's, it's a tricky thing. This is, uh, this one's for, for Helen. Well, it's not necessarily, in fact, everyone can have a go. It's only just about explaining gravity. You'll all be fine on that. Um, this was, uh, this is from Charlotte, who says, I don't understand gravity at all. Why does it make things fall and not float, attract but not repel? Does it have to be this way? Now, Helen, how do you feel about going with the, the gravity right. question today? So, so gravity is different from the other four, the three. There are four major forces in physics um, and, and gravity is different from the other three because it's only attractive. And the, the model for this is that it's a different. So one of the problems in physics in general <laughs> is that gravity and quantum physics are not reconciled. And so in the quantum world, we we have a model for how forces are transferred and what they do. And it's to do with little um, entities moving between things and exchanging uh, not quite particles, but well, they are particles, but li exchanging little things. Whereas gravity, we explain using general relativity, which is where we say that mass affects the space time around it and so actually the general relativistic explanation for gravity is that actually things are going in a straight line it's just that space is curved because of there being a lump there so so the reason gravity is different and it can't be one one way of saying the reason the reason it's different is that our model for understanding gravity is completely different to our model for understanding the other fundamental forces and and we at the moment we can't reconcile those two things there is hope that studying things like black holes where they sort of have to join up around the back somewhere in a black hole general relativity and quantum theory have to get on somewhere they do exist in the same universe um so so there's a, there was a lot in the question and i can't remember all of it but but one of the reasons that we can't make give a simple explanation of why it's different is because we haven't got fundamentally in a really fundamental way we haven't got a good model for why it's different it, it just acts our our model for understanding it is completely separate to our model for understanding the other forces isn't there also a, a uh a kind of um a, a gravity that repels as well that you will find in so is, is that right that there's a i'm sure i was reading in katie max book that there was uh that there is a point where you would then get uh what might be you know repellent gravity if katie max said it it's probably correct but i it does it's not something i'm familiar with think of is is that you know we we have this you know for when i was a student the, the assumption was that the universe was expanding but mm. it was slowing down because all the mass mm. in the universe should be pulling it back you know it might still be moving apart but it would be slowing down and and maybe it was going to come to a halt and maybe there might be this big crunch with the gravity pulling the universe back into itself 
And then in the 90s, when they sent up some satellites to measure how much was the universe slowing down, um, turned out the universe is speeding up. So there is some kind of anti-gravity force, and they call it dark energy. People may have heard of dark matter, and they may now have heard of dark energy. Dark energy seems to be this driving force that's causing the universe to, to, to accelerate away uh, into oblivion. And um, that's, that, that adds to the mystery. That really does add to the mystery of, of, of you know, may, maybe gravity is like it is around here on, on, on a localized way. It's be, behaves in a certain way. But over vast distances, it maybe repels. That, that's a weird thing. Um, I mean, one of the other weird things about gravity is, you know, it's incredibly weak. We think gravity is very strong because it pulls us down onto the earth and we take huge rockets to get off the earth. But if you take, take a tiny fridge magnet and stick it onto your fridge, that magnet, the force of magnetism or electromagnetism or whatever it is, can defy the entire gravitational pull of the whole earth on that magnet and not fall down. Um, so, so it is a weird one. And, and we, as, as Helen says, we don't have we don't have we have an understanding of how gravity works but it doesn't fit in with anything else we understand about the other forces um so it, it there's a huge amount of work still to be done now the it, dark energy bit always, always reminds, reminds me of that i think it was a new yorker cartoon where you see a big blackboard and it's got two sides of an equation then in the middle it just says and then the magic happens and he goes yeah i think <laughs> we still need to do a little bit more work on this but it's interesting because actually the dark energy thing, I mean, that it's been it's it's been written in photographs from telescopes like the Hubble telescope for decades. And people didn't I don't think they really took it seriously. You know, they saw that if you looked at the way things were spinning and the way that things were moving, it didn't match the amount of gravity that you could justify from the planets and the black holes and the other things. That's, it was written there. Monica probably knows more about this, right? Well, I was going to say that's the dark matter rather than the dark energy. Dark energy. OK, that's yeah, my so mistake. It, it, it's the dark matter which um, which con- which controls the, the the motion of galaxies and things, but it's the dark energy which they say is they say is the energy in the vacuum. It's like right, okay, but vacuum's empty. How can it have any energy in it? And this is again, you know, where the magic happens. But the other really mysterious thing about gravity is that it happens instantly, uh, and it happens. You know, we have we haven't got that. You know, okay, we have the acceleration due to gravity of something's falling from a, a, a big height, but it, it's like we don't know how there is the transfer of the, the the pull of gravity. We don't understand that, and it is really mysterious. So whoever the caller was, you know, it's like fair play to them. <laughs> is it is, is it, looking back? Is there perhaps regret that the titling of dark matter and dark energy, because it does lead to an, a lot of confusion, I think. We've done discussions before on Monkey Cage and various live events as well, that it's like, oh, well, they must be directly connected then. That's because they're, they're, they're the same thing. Looking back, could we have done more work when it came to kind of uh, the, the the naming? Should we get someone maybe from the advertising industry in to uh, no. look some... No, <laughs> no you're entirely correct, Helen. Here's my problem uh, with the naming, actually. Is that once what, you give it a name, everyone assumes you know what it is. and actually there is an argument i think for they sort of need to be names in brackets because they only call it dark energy because the 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 word for it is actually the name of a gap it's in the knowledge it's not the name of the thing in the gap that's going to fill the gap it's just the name of the hole (laughs) that someone has to fill at some point and and the confusing thing about calling it dark matter and dark energy i mean we all know that energy is matter times um, the square of the uh, velocity of light but not dark energy and not dark matter they're not connected like that at all but it it sort of really draws you along that path um simon Simon, we uh, as we're talking about it's on these kind of cutting edge worlds uh virginia uh, has says science writers often joke about how their book is out of date with new research before it's even published has there been actually they very rarely joke about that until it's at least been out for a year because otherwise they're really damaging sales but i I know what you mean virginia um has there been any new discoveries in the last 15 years that would have changed anything you wrote about in your book big bang or are we still pretty much in agreement on all of that i've always been quite cautious you know Big Bang is not about our current understanding of cosmology. The Big Bang is really about how did we get to where we are today? So what did we used to think that the, where do we, where did we think the universe came from 
in the 19th century? Uh, who were the people that came up with the idea of a Big Bang? Um, what was the evidence that supported them? What were the controversies in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s that led to this kind of battle between those who, who thought the universe had been here forever and those who thought it had been created? And how was that eventually resolved in, in the, the mid-60s and into the 70s and the increasing evidence in the 80s? So my book kind of stops in about 1990. And that's sort of deliberate because I just didn't want to get into all the controversies that are happening now, which, you know, so when my book was published, I don't know if dark energy was a thing or not. But as you say, it would me immediately be out of date. Um, so things like, you know, Fermat's Last Theorem, that book ends when Fermat's Last Theorem was proved. There's nothing else that's going to make that book out of date. Um, the code book, it, you know, that book is now 20 years old and a lot's happened in, in information security in the last 20 years. But my book is not really a modern, uh, a, a look at modern cryptography. It's, it's really looking at the evolution and the history of it. So I try to kind of um, protect my books from, from going out of date. Um, and hopefully, yeah, homeopathy still doesn't work. Um, but, but, but interestingly, but, but Edzard and I did review all the topics in our book when we brought the paper book out. And I think it was the Alexander technique, which we'd given quite a hard, uh, uh, we'd been very negative about the Alexander technique, but a study had come in. It was a respectable study. It probably built on something else that had been published. And so we changed our comments about Alexander technique based on that. So, you know, when you get new evidence, you, you change your opinions and that, that's what we did. But, but there wasn't a huge amount of change between the hardback and the paperback. So I got worried there because I thought just before, before the, end, the end, you would suddenly burst into singing a David Hasselhoff song and we'll go, that's the Berlin Wall's <laughs> kicked in now, hasn't it? It's an absolute disaster. Um, yeah. This is a question for uh, Monica from Jenna, Gemma. Gemma says, uh, there's so much coverage and excitement about the Philae landing. And then we, at last, in the major news, we didn't really get to hear anything else about what science came out of the mission. So I guess my question is, what have we learned since? Oh, well, we've learned all sorts of stuff. I mean, we've learned the composition of the, the ice of the comet. We've learned um, what it was made from inside, whether it was lots of sort of small pebbles. Uh, we've learned more about the, the actual building blocks, the different types of organic compounds that were there. Um, we've learned about um, the, uh, the, the rate at which the um, ice and the other volatiles come off the comet. Uh, we've learned a whole load of stuff which really helps us understand a lot better about how comets are made, about what they're made from and uh, why they were made where they were and, and what other bits and pieces have gone into making them. Uh, we've learned a, a lot about the, the way they move, the way they spin, um, the way they're formed uh, in terms of are they bits that have crashed into each other, the relationship with other bodies in the solar system. So there's a whole load of stuff that we've we've learned. Unfortunately, we didn't learn anything like, hey, yes, there actually is DNA on this comet or anything like that. So um, the, the, the headlines for us have been it's it's been another fantastic step forward in understanding the origin of the solar system and understanding the building blocks of life. Um, but nothing which is going to say we found life on a comet or we can explain viruses coming from outer space or anything like that. All we can say is that side of stuff is nonsense. So in terms of so in terms of what might have been predicted in terms of uh, the results you got, what, what has been the one which perhaps was most, if, if anything, counterinstinctual or, or, or you know, the, the, the biggest leap in terms of what, what you had presumed and what actually. Well, I think the biggest leap came the day we saw its shape, you know, and it was that funny sort of duck shaped thing, which was completely not expected totally and utterly not expected. The next thing that we found that was unexpected was that there was so little ice on the surface that so much of the, the surface was black. Um, there, was an, there had been an understanding or a thought that so much of that material will be stripped away each time the comet came close to the sun and that it wouldn't get a chance to build up. But the fact that there was so little ice compared to the refractory the hard nature of the black stuff that was a real surprise as well so uh, you know it's like you start off with a model um that comets are 
dirty snowballs, so they're ice with a bit of dirt mixed in. You then modify the model to say, well, they're not um, dirty snowballs, they're icy dirt balls. And now we've got something, well, actually, it's a dirt ball with um, a hard crust and a bit of ice. So it's been, yeah, it, it, the, the evolution of the models has changed quite a lot. Every single one of those answers sounded like those answers sounded like it was the first day at the biscuit factory when they were researching a new marshmallow-based uh, treat. So um, we're uh, with with th the, the final questions now for just what, one for each of you. And uh, thank you very much, by the way, everyone for watching. And thank you very much, Monica, for your tenacity, which of course is one of those things that you need when you work in the area you do. But there, of uh, what we found out, just sitting literally on the router is the way that that manages to, to work. So um, now uh, this is about the series that you've just been doing on Cosmic shams at the moment helen which is uh, in one of the episodes of the easter series helen says she didn't feel terrified about being on a parabolic flight till she looked out of the window i'm wondering if it was just purely mental terror when she looked out the window or did she actually start to feel physically sick too once the reality came into focus so it has been a repeating trend that everyone is disappointed that I did not feel sick at any point. I did not vomit and I did not get seasick. Uh, and this remains true when I was looking out of the window. Everyone has been desperate. They're like, but you must have been sick. And I'm like, no, I was perfectly fine. <laughs> really perfectly fine. But what was interesting. So for those who didn't see that part of the series um, on the parabolic flight on in the main. So there's two bits of the plane. They, they kind of cut out off the front third. They black out the windows. That's the experiment area. The back third of the plane is still the normal seats in the window so when you're in the experiment bit you can't see what's going on gravity changes a bit totally fine in the other bit you can see what the plane is doing you can watch it falling out of the sky <laughs> and um so it's only the last parabola where i went to the back and so i didn't feel at all sick what i but i did viscerally understand what the plane was doing in a way that i had obviously logically understood before but my body went oh <laughs> that's what's going on and um because the thing that i didn't expect was that you have you have you you can't feel at all that the plane is tilting when you're in the main body of the plane it just feels like gravity increases and then it decreases and then it increases again you've got no idea that you're actually standing on the surface which is at 45 degrees to the horizontal so um so no i didn't feel sick but I did have to struggle not to swear. Like, you know, and I've been in a, I've done a lot of odd things in my life. I've been very privileged to be chucked out of planes and dropped down things and all that kind of stuff. And um, uh, so, so there's a logical thing that you are safe because you have done this 29 times before. It's, you're not, it's not going to kill you on the 30th time, but you feel it because your body's got all that extra sensory stream of what's actually going on. And it is a very different experience, but no, wasn't sick. Sorry. That's one of the things. It's just not enough in in not uh, enough in in, uh, in in the movies about space exploration because you know apart from Apollo eight, which you know famously, of course, had uh, you know terrible attack of diarrhea and all manner of other things as well. That the, the the bomb, yeah. Over, but sometimes I've done shows with astronauts and someone said, "Oh, don't ask that because uh, he was very famous for throwing up." So there's loads, of, you know. But that's that's somehow ruins the, the the pristine image unless it's really dramatic we keep a lot of that quite quiet don't we some of the more but it's, but it's interesting because it's a lot because obviously i spend a lot of time at sea i study big storms you know i am in you know 10 meter waves are kind of that's what we go there for and um it is uh, people are always asking aren't you seasick and i and no the answer is no there as well and most oceanographers aren't i do know some people who are but most of them aren't and it is just you go into that, that is your working environment and you get used to it, but no one wants to hear that you've got used to it. And I think there's a relatability thing. And um, every time I say, no, of course I wasn't sick. Um, I feel that people get a bit more distant from me because they think they would be sick and they sort of want to think that's how I would feel. And, and it's very hard to say to someone, it, it's not like that. that, that thing that you think is absolutely what it's like. It's not like that. And but they're so, you know, it makes it very unrelatable. So I do worry about saying it, but it's really important to say it's not true. And also humans, you know, seasickness medication, people have put a lot of work into that. <laughs> so if you do get seasick, you, you, there are ways of dealing with it. Um, so, um, Simon, I, I'm going to ask you two things. One question, uh, I don't know if it actually came from you or not, is uh, are you working on a new book? Uh, and uh, if not, what's something you'd like to really dig into? And on top of that person's question, I'd also like, can you tell us a little bit about Parallel.org.uk, uh, the kind of puzzles, if you can give us maybe a, 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 an example of the kind of thing that the 15-year-olds uh, are up against? So, so the two things are kind of related. I'm not writing a book. Uh, I've kind of 
I've kind of given up. Uh, I, I kind of think um, I've written a few books and I, I kind of just worried about putting three, four years of work into a new book, which maybe nobody will want to read um, and kind of think, if I've got three or four years ahead of me to do something, what would I really love to do? And the thing I really love to do, the thing I'm really passionate about at the moment is thinking how, if you're good at maths at school, how do you get to be really good? Yeah, I, th I think schools do a great job of helping kids who are struggling and schools do a good job of helping kids who are in the middle become good. But if you're good at maths, I'm not sure our schools are designed to help you become great at maths. And so Parallel is part of that. Parallel is a weekly um, smorgasbord of, of puzzles, riddles, maths problems, number file videos, all of that good stuff. Um, and, and there's one for year seven, one for year eight, one for year nine, one for year 10, one for, yeah, we haven't got 11 yet. We will do next year. And we've had about 300,000 completed. So wow. kids who do it, you know, come back week after week. And that's the thing. If you're going to do it, do it every single week and stretch your, or broaden your horizons and, and stretch your brain a bit. Um, so that's, that's one element of what I'm trying to do. I'm, I'm, I'm in parallel to parallel, um, thinking about what, what can schools do or what can we directly do with schools to help them um, stretch those kids who, who are good but could be great um, to, so that more people have access to being excellent. That, that's the fundamental thing. You know, if, you know, if you're a young girl who's 11 or 12 and you come out of primary school bouncing with, with enthusiasm for maths, how do we develop you into a, a further mathematician at A-level and then a computer scientist as a degree or something? So... Um, <clears throat> So I've got a really interesting project, which I'm going to start in the autumn. Uh, but if people follow, follow me on Twitter at S-L-Singh, S-L-Singh, S-I-N-G-H, um, I'll be talking about that. Um, but yeah, no, I think we're doing some really interesting things. I'm really, I'm really excited about that in such a way that I don't want to write books or do anything else at the moment. And also, your, your last book was uh, The Simpsons of Mathematics, which was, uh, I mean, you, you'd almost finished writing that book when you then threw away the whole thing and started again, didn't you? You suddenly went, I've got the wrong angle. I mean, and that's an incredible yeah. thing to have to do. Yeah, it's, it's, so I'd written that book. All of my books have sort of six or seven big chapters. And, you know, that, that's the way I write books. And that's where I thought I'd write this book. You know, I had a, a big chapter about Pi, which crops up in various places. I had a big chapter about Lisa. Um, and then I was flying over to meet the writers. Um, I flew over to, to Los Angeles to meet all of these writers and spend a week with them. And literally in that nine, 10 hour flight to LA, I restructured the entire book. So <laughs> instead of having six big chapters, it had about 18 little chapters, which was much more appropriate. It was much more fun, lighthearted, you know, much pacier, uh, much more in keeping with what the Simpsons are all about and Futurama as well. And, um, yeah, no, that was that was that was a really great flight. Um, I remember the idea of the Big Bang came from. I was on a flight going to America, and uh, the person next to me, you know, I told them I was a science writer, and they they were talking to me about science, and they said, "Well, what, tell me about the Big Bang." And, and I thought, well, this is incredible. We have this amazing theory of the universe and where it came from, and yet somebody here who's you know educated had no idea what the Big Bang theory really was. And so I wrote the proposal for Big Bang uh, on the flight, faxed it back to the UK because those were the days when we had faxes. Uh, and within the week, that was it. We, you know, we had the book deal and I was ready to start writing it. So playing seemed to be quite a fruitful place for me to, to do work, it seems. Well, I can see why you're, well, not, see why you're not writing at the moment. The, uh, <laughs> the lack of transience means it's uh, quite impossible for you to create anything. <laughs> exactly. Um, the uh, final question for you, Monica, is from Paul, who says, if, if you could feel a piece of rock from anything that exists within our solar system, what would you like to get hold of? Ooh, wow, what a difficult question. What would I like to get hold of? Oh, gosh. I'd like to, I think I'd like to get hold of a piece of the floor the ocean floor of Europa all right because we know Europa's covered in ice and we're fairly certain there's a, 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 a lake a sea below it an ocean below it and then there must be a, a, a surface underneath that ocean but we don't know what's that made of what that's made of and we don't know how the ice has changed it and we don't know if there's any 
creatures down there. We don't know whether there are any hydrothermal vents producing fantastic copper minerals like malachite and stuff like that. So wouldn't it be fantastic to, to, <laughs> to get a chunk of malachite <laughs> from the ocean floor of Europa? <laughs> that would be really cool. I think that will please Helen as well. Yeah. I'm in. As long as it's brightly coloured, I'm in. You've, I'm in. In. You've invented green. Congratulations. Uh, thank you very much, everyone, for, for joining us to uh, Monica, Helen and Simon. And uh, we'll be back at the same time next week. I just mentioned again, of course, that you can still watch Helen's show uh, on the BBC, which was Ocean Autopsy. That's on iPlayer now. And also keep up to date with uh, the Cosmic Shambles series uh, she did with uh, Ginny Smith as well on, on ESA and the Parabolic Flights. And you can see the suspense of whether she's going to vomit or not all of these different things spoiler alert we've kind of found out she doesn't but nevertheless you can still get some of those kind of sensations uh simon we've mentioned uh, again parallel.org.uk uh keep up to date find out if you any kids who are really into maths if you've got friends whose kids this is you know steer them in this direction i know how much simon you know loves enthusing people about mathematics and, and it's it's a wonderful thing uh monica's work will continue to uh if not take us to mars at least bring some things back from mars one way <laughs> the other we'll, we'll get hold of something uh thursday night uh, eight o'clock uh, i'm a joke and so are you uh that's uh on our next well one of our next live shows and that's going to be with josh cohen as well talking about various different ideas of therapy and uh, anxiety go to cosmic shambles site to find out about all of these things and uh that's it the tip jars at the bottom if you fancy putting something in there and uh if uh if not that's fine as well or you can also join us on patreon this is how we fund we're doing about five shows at least a week and uh patreon means that we can keep making them so thanks very much everyone see you next sunday for another sunday science q and a thank you very much for listening support us at patreon.com slash cosmic shambles check out all the other stuff over at cosmic shambles.com follow us on Twitter at Cosmic Shambles or Cosmic Shambles Network on Instagram and Facebook. Bye for now.